Hey guys, welcome back to the C4 podcast where I tell stories about crime cases and we have caffeinated conversations. For today's episode, I decided to drink a Dr. Pepper, the new strawberry cream flavor. If you drink soda, I suggest you try it. It's actually really good. They also have a zero version as well. And this is not sponsored, by the way, but I wish it was. Dr. Pepper, if you're listening, hit me up. Anyways, let me address the elephant in the room. Yes, this episode was supposed to be up on Valentine's Day, but the universe was not on my side. First, I was having some audio issues. Then I accidentally deleted the whole script and I was devastated. And instead of doing it all over again and rewriting everything that same day, I decided to take a couple days off for my mental health. And I also had family visiting from out of town, so I wanted to spend some time with them. But anyways, I hope you guys understand and are still here listening. With that being said, today I will be telling you a story about a crime in a small town. But before I do, my co-host has something to say. I would like to share what we used to gather information for this episode. HistoricalCrimeDetective.com, MontereyHerald.com, SFExaminer.com, and Newspapers.com. This podcast channel is for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Our story begins in the mid-1970s in a small coastal town named Seaside. The town is overlooking Monterey Bay, and the area is known for wine tasting, whale watching, CSUMB, and the beautiful ocean. During 1975, it was a generally safe place to live, but that all changed for one family. Josephine Smith, Suzanne Harris, Rachel Harris, and Renee Harris were four females in one family who lived in a small cottage home in Seaside, California. Josephine was Suzanne's mom and Rachel and Renee's grandmother, and Suzanne was Rachel's mom and Renee's aunt. Renee's mom was another one of Josephine's daughters. On the evening of Tuesday, August 9th, 1977, both women, Josephine and Suzanne, along with the two girls, Rachel and Renee, were seen at the Assembly of God Church. Josephine was a woman of God. She always encouraged them all to go to church with her, and they did, so it was no surprise that they were all seen together that night. The priests invited them all to an evangelic seminar the following evening and Josephine promised they'd all be back for the seminar. The next morning, which was Wednesday, August 10th, 1977, Suzanne and Renee were supposed to go to work. Suzanne worked at an electrical firm, and Renee was only a teenager, so she had a summer job at the YMCA. Neither of them showed up for work, and Suzanne's car remained parked in the driveway of their home the same spot where she had parked it after coming home from church on Tuesday night. Wednesday evening came around, and when the seminar began, the priest was surprised that Josephine, Suzanne, and the girls were not there. It wasn't like Josephine to not show up to a church event when she promised she would. The priest was worried. He knew Josephine well enough to know something was wrong. He even thought about checking in on them that night, but he got busy and forgot. The same day, at around 8 p.m., one of Suzanne's friends from work wondered why she didn't show up to work or why she didn't return her call all day. She thought about driving over to her house, but instead decided to call her friend, who also happened to live three houses down from Suzanne, and ask if he would go check up on them. 
just to see if they were home. He didn't check in on them that night, but he promised to go the next morning. Thursday, August 11, 1977, at around 5.30 a.m., just before he left to work, he walked down the street to Suzanne's house and knocked on the door. He waited a few minutes and then began walking away. As he was leaving, he turned and noticed one of the lights was on. He walked closer to it and looked through the window, and there he saw a girl face down on a blood-soaked bed. He called 911, and 10 minutes later, the first seaside officer on scene knocked down the door to the worst crime scene of his career. Inside of the home, police found a massacre, similar to what you'd see in gory movies, but this was real. In the kitchen, they found 67-year-old Josephine Smith lying next to her 27-year-old daughter, Suzanne Harris, and besides them was 6-year-old Rachel Harris. And in the bedroom, they found 15-year-old Renee Harris on a bed with her hands tied behind her back. Both women and girls were stabbed to death, and the autopsy later showed that they had each been stabbed between 20 to 45 times. The neighbor who called 911 later told reporters that he walked in the house and saw blood everywhere. He also said that he wished he had never walked in and that the crime scene made him sick to his stomach. Dang, I can't believe he actually walked in and saw the dead bodies. I can't even imagine what he thought and if and if he still thinks about it today. I mean, that neighbor must have been, what, 24, 25 years old? He's still alive. I wonder if he's still thinking about it. I would. I would be traumatized. As police began investigating, they realized this murder case would be different because it was not a robbery gone bad. Nothing from the home was taken. No windows were broken. And there didn't appear to be a struggle inside the homes. And none of the victims were sexually assaulted. Police didn't find anything out of place or signs of an intruder besides the dead bodies. Long story short, they had no clues, no suspects, and no motives. The only thing they did find was a whole lot of blood. As the days passed, detectives were doing everything they could to solve this case. They looked at the crime scene photos over and over again. They found two footprints, a large one and a small one. They determined that the small footprint belonged to one of the victims, so the large footprint was all they had, but they didn't have anything to match it to. Police were doing everything to find a break in the case. They interviewed over 300 people who knew the family from the community, church, school, and work. They searched for clues in the area surrounding the home, and they even made a special hotline for this case, and every tip was investigated. Soon after the murders, the seaside residents became very angry at the police for not solving the case fast enough. They worried about what family might be next, and to help alleviate the stress, a group of community members organized a citizen's task force to patrol the streets. Some would be on foot and some would cruise around in their cars, and they'd communicate through walkie-talkies. They would report suspicious-looking cars and people, and although it was a successful task force, they got tired of playing cops versus bad guys and stopped after three weeks. 
Side note, did anybody ever play Cops vs. Robbers growing up? I remember my brothers always wanted to play that, and I don't know, I just thought it was funny. It had been over a month, and police still had no suspect in custody. The family of the victims complained to the mayor and began talking to reporters. When the media began getting involved, they started asking police questions. They were shocked to find out that there was only three detectives assigned to this case. The public stopped trusting Seaside PD and things got so bad that the California Department of Justice opened an investigation with the Seaside PD. They evaluated the police department to make sure they were doing everything correctly with the investigation. On September 19, 1977, the police department was cleared. The California Department of Justice claimed that the performance of seaside detectives was being conducted proficiently and that they were performing their duties adequately. Ultimately, the seaside PD was doing their job. They just needed a new clue to move forward. Finally, they got a break in the case. It came from an anonymous 19-year-old girl. She called a hotline to give detectives the name of the killer's new girlfriend. The caller was the killer's longtime ex-girlfriend and she called trying to get her rival arrested. She told detectives the killer's new girlfriend was 14-year-old Terry Milligan. The hotline detective asked who the killer was and the anonymous caller was surprised that they didn't already know who it was. Then she told them the killer's name was Harold Bicknell. The detective asked her, who's Harold Bicknell? She answered, you don't even know who that is? I thought you were a detective investigating that murder case. Immediately after the call, detectives began investigating the allegations. They started with interviewing his friends, and those who knew anything talked. Turns out, Harold Bicknell was the 19-year-old grandson of Josephine Smith. He was a nephew to Suzanne and a cousin to both Rachel and Renee. Harold was also well-known in the community. He sang in the church's choir, and he also volunteered for the Citizens Task Force one night. He had a lot of friends and seemed to be a well-known young man, but police did not know him because just two days after the murders, he moved to San Diego to join the Navy. On the morning of October 26, 1977, Harold Bignall was arrested at the San Diego Naval Training Center. He was brought back to Monterey County where he later made a partial confession to the murders. He also accused his now pregnant 14-year-old girlfriend, Terry Milligan, of being involved, and she was arrested shortly after. One month later, another young girl named Karen Kirby was arrested for her involvement in the murders. She was 15 years old. Both Karen and Terry were charged as juveniles. The involvement of both girls was kept private by the DA's office, and all that was really known of Karen was that she didn't really know Harold or Terry, but she was a close friend to one of the victims, Renee. In February 1978, investigators revealed that there was another witness. Her name was Raylene. She was Renee's older sister. Raylene had seen it all, and she was traumatized by it, which is why she didn't say anything right away. She had to block out everything she had seen that night, but when she was finally ready to talk to police, she was able to recover details of what happened that night. In November, Raylene told police about Karen Kirby's involvement, which is why she was arrested in the first place. 
During a court hearing on February 16, 1978, Raylene testified that she was in the kitchen when Harold and Renee began arguing and that Renee was telling Harold how dumb he was to be cheating on his girlfriend with a 14-year-old and Harold pulled out a knife out of his pocket and stabbed Renee. That was all she remembered because after that she passed out. She was either hit in the head and knocked unconscious or she fainted and hit her head. She also told the judge that she woke up the next morning in Karen Kirby's room and told her she had a nightmare, but that Karen had no interest in hearing what it was about. She also testified that she once tried telling Harold about the bad dream and he said, yeah, it does seem like a bad dream. With Raylene testifying against Harold and Harold's confession, you'd think the trial would last two or maybe three days but it lasted five weeks because Harold changed his mind. He pleaded not guilty. He said he didn't remember killing anyone and denied his confessions. Harold Bicknell testified that he went over to the house the night of the murders to confront his cousin Renee. He said she was going to expose his infidelity to his longtime girlfriend. Renee was going to tell her that he'd been cheating on her with a 14-year-old. According to historicalcrime.com, Bicknell had multiple personalities during trial. Although he said he could not remember killing anyone, he later said that he killed for love. During the trial, he said things like, When I look back, I see that he was fighting to protect love. And when I see how much damage I brought, I hate that man. It seemed like one of his personalities hated the other one. During a court hearing, one of his personalities confessed to killing three young females but he denied killing his grandmother Josephine. He blamed her death on Karen and Terry. Towards the end of the trial, another personality of his admitted to stabbing Renee. He also said that after he stabbed Renee, he noticed that his grandma Josephine and his aunt Suzanne witnessed the stabbing, so he went after them and stabbed them too. He later testified that Terry stabbed Rachel and when Rachel tried escaping, he went after Rachel and stabbed her to death. The jury hated him. He had ruined so many lives. On April 21, 1976, Harold Bicknell was found guilty. He was ordered to serve four life sentences for the murders of Josephine Smith, Suzanne Harris, Rachel Harris, and Renee Harris. Unfortunately, being sentenced to serve four life sentences didn't mean that he'd be in prison for his entire life because prison sentences were extremely lenient in the 70s. His four life sentences meant that he would be eligible for parole after serving seven years in prison because what we know as life in prison without parole wasn't an option until the 1980s. Fortunately, the California Board of Parole Hearings was not lenient with this case. They were not lenient when it came to mass murders. Harold Bicknell continues to serve his life sentence at Salinas Valley State Prison, a level 4 prison in Soledad, California. And as for Terry Milligan, she was convicted in juvenile court of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. Karen Kirby was convicted of being an accessory but was found not guilty of murder. Their involvement and sentences were not made public. Although this case happened in 1975, there has been an update. 
On July 30, 2020, after serving 43 years in California state prisons, Harold Bicknell was granted eligible for parole by the California Parole Board, but the victim's family did not allow his release. They wrote letters and attended board meetings and told the victim's stories. Governor Newsom overturned the board's decision after several people protested his release. Whoa, that was one hell of a crime case story, right? It's mind-blowing that after almost 50 years, the victim's family are still advocating for them and getting justice for Josephine, Suzanne, Rachel, and Renee. I hope that he does not get let out on parole because he is a true danger to society. During one of the parole board meetings in 2020, victims and old friends spoke about Harold Bicknell. Women that he dated as teenagers claimed that he was abusive during the relationship, and one of his sisters claimed that Harold once strangled her when they were teenagers. So isn't it awful that Harold Bicknell killed four females in his family all because his love triangle was going to be exposed? Pure evil. That's it guys, that was a crime story about one man that killed four females of three generations in his family. That was episode two, A Slice of Seaside. If you're still here, follow the C4 podcast on Instagram and tell me what you thought of this episode and in exchange, I'll send you a sticker with my logo. With that being said, I'll see you all next episode. Stay safe. Bye!